All right, our uh, <clears throat> second scripture reading today comes to us from the book of Joel, chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 18 through 27. Uh, if you want to follow along, it's in your pew Bibles on page 1,415. Uh, we'll also have the words on the screen for you. Joel, chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land with its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea. And its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. I, you will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Thus ends our reading of God's comforting and encouraging word. May all who hear it have their God dwelling among them, and may they know that he is the Lord their God. Today we are living in a world where the phrase, a new normal, has become common parlance. But what do we mean when we say a new normal? Well, for one, it must mean that there was an old normal. Am I right? A way that we used to live. But now we have this new normal. A way that we go about life that is different from the way we went about life in the past. And one doesn't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out what, what has changed. I mean, just look around the room and you'll see the obvious differences. COVID has shifted the dynamics of our everyday life. From masks to social distancing, from the economic shutdowns to distant learning, the fact that we are now live streaming our services. This is the new normal. I mean, even my, my, my five-year-old son doesn't complain anymore when we put a mask on him. To him, it's just something that we do. 
But is this new normal the solution? Is this how life will be from, from now on? Sure, perhaps a year from now, COVID will be gone, but, but what happens when the next virus arrives? Will we have to go through, through all of this all over again? In, in the book of Joel, we have been reading about a people that, that also had a new normal. Because of this locust infestation, their lives were turned upside down. Their crops were destroyed and, and they had to ration their food in order to survive. The drunks even had to sober up because there was a shortage of wine. Festivities had to be canceled as there was no means, of, no means to celebrate. And, and even their worship had to change as they could no longer bring their offerings to the temple. These people had to sacrifice. They had to go without. And they had to do so in order to see tomorrow. In fact, things were, were so bad that Joel tells us that every person would be in mourning. For pretty much every crop had been destroyed. And the shortage of food and the shortage of drink was felt by both the poor and the rich, the young and the old. Many were going hungry, and not a few starved to death. And so the prophet Joel directed his people to weep. For the day of the Lord was upon them, and it was a day of destruction. For this invading army had entered their land, a mighty force that could not be stopped, Nothing could stand in their way. I mean, so fierce were they that, that the people trembled in fear. And at the head of this army was, was their mighty commander, Yahweh himself. God was leading the charge. And so dreadful was his presence that both the heavens and the earth shook at his arrival. For the people of Israel, life had grown dark, life had grown dim. Their, their new normal was hunger and want. But then Joel gave them a message of hope. And it was last week we, that we saw that this, this same God who had been leading the locusts was now beginning a healing process with his people. For he was calling them to return to him. They were to repent with, with all their hearts that he might show them his grace and his compassion, his slowness to anger and his, un, and his abounding love. He would relent from sending his calamity and bring about once more his blessing. And so he called the people to gather together in a sacred assembly. They were to fast and, and to mourn over their sins. And they were to cry out to the Lord their, their God. And, and this is what we read in, in chapter 2, verse 17. Spare, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This was their plea for mercy, a plea based on God's glory. But the question remained, would God hear their cries? 
And if he did, how would he respond? How does God react when his people return to him? This is what we're going to look at in our passage for today and and really throughout the rest of Joel. What What is amazing about this book is that from here on out, God will be speaking to his people in the first person. Up to now, for for the most part, God has been referred to in the third person. And it has been mainly Joel who has been communicating to his people, minus a couple couple of exceptions. But all this changes starting in verse 19. And pretty much for the rest of this book, Yahweh will be the one who will be speaking directly to his people. In essence, from, from, from 2.19 all the way to the end, 3.21, God will be giving his long reply to his people's repentant hearts. And what this shows us is that, is that God wants his people to know that, that, that just because he sent calamity their way, it does not mean that he is finished with them. No. He is still their God, and they are still his people. And what we'll see today is that, is that if their repentance was true, if they really had returned to him with all their heart, then he would restore them all that they had lost. So let's take a closer look at this passage and see exactly how God does this. Look at, look at verse 18. Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The first thing we must notice is that that this is a direct answer to what we read in verse 17. This this crying out for for mercy on the basis of God's glory. And Joel tells us that, that, that God will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. Now, typically when we think of jealousy, we, we view it in a negative sense, as an as an ugly quality to have. In fact, one of the first things that came to my mind were the lyrics of that, that iconic song from, by Rick Springfield. You know the one. I wish that I had Jesse's girl. <laughs> I mean, this, this is the type of jealousy that, that we normally think of. A, a covetous desire for another person's possessions. But with God, it's different. For the, for the jealousy of God is his desire for something that is rightfully his. These aren't the envious thoughts of a, of a sinful man. Rather, it's as if a, a treasure had been stolen from God and he is jealous to recover it safely. One could say that his, his jealousy is his protectiveness over his possessions. And so when, when Joel says that the Lord will be jealous for his land, it means that he has a passion for the well-being of this portion of the earth and everything that resides within it. And what land is he referring to? He is referring to the same land that had been devoured by the locust. None other than the, the, than the promised land that had been given to his people Israel. God was jealous to restore it to its former glory. 
But not only that, Joel also tells us that God takes pity on his people. In other words, he has a, a compassion for them and, and for their wretched state. And we know that these, these people were pitiable indeed, for, for they had been through the ringer, so to speak, because of all the devastation of, uh, that their land had suffered. They had been hungry. They were suffering from famine. They were like uh, little children that had been abandoned years prior and were now dressed in rags and begging for food. Or like that, that lost sheep roaming aimlessly through the hills, constantly in danger to be a wolf's next meal. God saw their distress and took pity upon them. But at the heart of both this jealousy and this, and this pity is the glory of God. For both the land and the people who dwell within that land are his possessions. They are unique within all the earth. For, for both of them bear his name and thus bear his reputation. And so God will restore his own for his own name's sake. And if you think about it, it is the glory of God that is at the heart of a person who has truly repented. For, for the man who has repented, the, his focus is no longer on himself. It is no longer about his own glory, but it is upon the glory of God Almighty. And when this happens, when a person returns to the Lord with all their heart, God will respond. Look, look at our next verse. Look at, look at what it says in verse 19. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. The Lord will reply. Does God respond when we repent? Absolutely. In fact, he longs to do so. I mean, after all, we are his children. Think of, think of the passage that, that Brian read to us earlier, the story of the prodigal son. What did the father do when his son repented and returned to him? Look at, look at Luke 15, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Do you see the love that this father has for his son? While he was still a long way off, the father saw him. This, this man must have been daily looking down that road, hoping for his son's return. And when this boy finally did come back, what does he do? He showed him compassion and affection. He, he ran to his son and gave him a great big hug and kissed him. Dear friends, this is how God feels about all those who return to him. He has a, a love for them that is, that is so deep, so tender. For he is jealous for his people. And he takes pity upon them. 
And this was how he felt for the people of Israel during Joel's time. He, he wanted to restore them by sending them grain and, and new wine and oil. He wanted to make certain that they were fully satisfied. And, and that is why he would restore the land to what it once had been. In order that his people's hunger would be stopped. But not only does he, he heal their land, but then he takes away their scorn. He, he, will, he will bring back to them their sense of dignity. Again, think about what the father did for his prodigal son. Look, look at Luke 15 again, this time at, at verses 22 through 24. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and, and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What a beautiful picture of restoration. Here we have this rebellious son who has now returned to his father. And, and now he is being clothed with the best robe. A ring is being put on his finger and sandals are given for his feet. They kill the fattened calf in order to celebrate in his honor. Brothers, sisters, this, this is what it looks like when God restores one's dignity. And this is what he does for all those who, who repent and who trust in him. You see, he, he doesn't accept their new normal, but he restores them into his fellowship as his children. And so this, this question that we are asking, does God respond when we return to him, is answered with a resounding yes. And he does so with his healing touch. So what does this look like? What, is, what does this restoration entail? In Joel, one of the first things we see is God removing the enemy. Take a look at the next verse. Look at verse 20. I will drive the northern army far from you pushing it into a parched and barren land, with its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea. And its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. In order for God to heal his land, he must first root out the source of the problem. These locusts had to go. It would be one thing for God to send, send the rain that they needed so that their crops could grow once again. But, but if the locusts remained, then the blessing of the rain would be pointless. For these insects would just devour everything again. No. In, in order for there to be a true restoration, the enemy must be dealt with. And this is exactly what God did with this invading army. He sent these causers of desolation to a desolate place, to a parched and barren land, in order that they might see a fitting end to their destructive ways. 
Did you know that God is still in the business of defeating our enemies? That, that this, is what he, this is what he does for all those who repent and trust in his son. He removes all of our, all of our adversaries, those, those sources of our fallen state, which is sin, death, and the devil. For it was at the cross that, that, that your sins were dealt with, as Christ took upon himself as he suffered and breathed his last. No longer will you be found guilty for the crimes that you have committed. For the punishment that you deserve has been removed as Jesus paid that penalty. And then it was only three days later that he defeated our second enemy, which is death. As, as Christ bodily rose from the grave, becoming the first fruit of the resurrection. And it is through this victory that all who have turned from their sins and trusted in him will also be raised on that final day, raised unto everlasting life. And finally, because Jesus did those things, he has also taken away Satan's power. No longer can the devil accuse you of the things you have done wrong. For Jesus has given to you his righteousness, his innocence. And no longer can, can Satan lie to you for, you, for you have been given the eyes of faith in order that you may see the truth. Truly, it was at the, at the cross of our Savior that the head of the serpent was crushed. And all these things are just the first step in God's salvation process. God removes our enemies. But he goes beyond just, just removing the bad guys, for, for he restores as well. Look at verses 21 through 24. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains and righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Here we see three groups that will progressively benefit from God's healing touch. The land, the animals, and the people of Zion. The land because God will restore it to its former glory. The wild animals, because they too have suffered greatly, but will, will now be able to find the nourishment that they need through the land's health. And finally, the, the, the people of Zion, because they are dependent on both a prosperous land and the well-being of these animals, particularly their cattle and their sheep. And God tells these three to not be afraid, but to rejoice. For he will send both the autumn rains, which soften the ground, preparing for the sowing of the crops, and the spring rains, which help those plants to mature and to ripen. In other words, the, the seasons will go as they were before, 
And they will be able to plant their crops once again without worry, without distress. And because of this, because of this restoration, they will reap a mighty, mighty harvest. Grain and new wine and oil. God makes special mention of these three crops as a reminder of the the connection that had been cut off, that had been lost with the absence of the grain offerings and the drink offerings. For these were the ingredients that were crucial in their worship worship of Him. You see, Yahweh was blessing His people once again by restoring that connection that they once had with Him. When I think of what we are going through today and how this virus has affected so much of our lives, it's hard to imagine things returning to normal. I mean, this is why we hear everyone talking about the new normal. But a new normal is not restoration. No. It is not God's intention for his people who have returned to him to have these disconnected lives that they would have to cover their faces and remain distant, that that they would have to be fearful in social gatherings, that they would have to worship in in front of some screen uh, apart from the family of God. As your pastor, I long for the day when these these masks are gone and and the blue tape is removed. When, it, when our live stream is only for those who are on vacation. I, I ache for that, that moment when we can gather together once again as a, as a family of God without any hindrances. A, a new normal is not restoration. It, it's not how our gracious God brings healing to his people, to the people of Zion. No. God is, is greater than that. I mean, just look at the picture that he paints in in verses 25 and 26. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. Imagine what it was like for these people to hear those words. These people who had been without for so long. I mean, this had to be music to their ears. And we can see that it had been a long time for God said that he would repay for the years that the locusts had stolen from them. Back then, it would take at least two years for a society to recover from a locust infestation. For whatever grains had been left behind wouldn't have been enough to replant their fields. And if these locusts had returned as as seemed to be indicated, then there would have been this perpetual cycle of sowing and reaping hardly anything. But as we saw earlier, God had now removed the locust army and he had given to them his autumn and spring rains. What little seed they had would produce an abundance of fruit. 
Not only would they be able to store away for the next season, but, but, but it says that their bellies would be full. How wonderful this must have been for them. That they were no longer living in the new normal, but rather God had given to them his restoration. And what did this restoration cause them to do? They praised the name of their Lord, of the Lord their God. I wonder how we will react once COVID is a thing of the past. Once our masks are removed and our blue tape is thrown into the trash. Once, once our schools go through a normal school year and our businesses are thriving once again. What will our re- reaction be to God's restoration? Will we be this ho-hum people just kind of going about as if ne- nothing ever happened? Or will we be like those Israelites who rejoice greatly, who praise the name of their God? My guess is that it will all depend on how we view this time. Do we see these days of COVID as a, as a day of the Lord, as a day that God has had his hand in all these things? Or will we, will we view it as, as just another phenomenon, an odd occurrence and nothing more? For unless we see God's hand in both the cause and in the, in the recovery, in his restoration, then we will have no real reason to praise his name. But God is constantly at work. And his hand is in all these things. Not only does God bring healing to the land, but he, he, he restores reputation as well. And this is the other thing we see. He takes away the people's shame. No longer, for these Israelites, no longer will will those neighboring nations mock them, asking the question, where is their God? For Yahweh will be front and center. And his abundant blessings will be the proof that he is still among his people. Look at our last verse. Look at verse 27. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel. This is the first time that, that, that this people's covenant name, Israel, has been used in this book. And it is used in the, in the same breath with the personal name of God, Yahweh. For those of you who don't know, every time you see LORD in all caps in the Old Testament, the Hebrew that is, that, that is used there is Yahweh. So verse 27 should read as follows. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am Yahweh your God. What we see here is God expressing to his people by using this covenant language. And he is expressing to them that he has not left them, that they are still his people. He is not this absent God, but he is dwelling among them. 
And if this was true for the Israelites who are under the law of Moses, then it is true for you as well. For you have Christ. And you are under a new covenant. And you have the words of Jesus. His his promise that says this, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. If God could restore his people back then, then he can do the same thing today through the power of his Son. For God has not left you. He is not finished working in your life. Rather, he continues to be your God and you continue to be his people. And his response when you return to him with all your heart is restoration. That's his promise. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for your mercy that when we return to you, you you do not turn us away. Instead, you hear our cries and take pity upon us. You remove our enemies and restore us to what we were meant to be. It is through your Son that you, you have returned to us our dignity. And through your Holy Spirit that you heal us from within. You have not left us, but you remain with your people residing within. We ask now that you would help us to to praise your name as we look forward to your restoration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.